To which Jane responds, yes, hope does not deny all the difficulty and all the danger that exists, but it is not stopped by them. There is a lot of darkness, but our actions create the light. Steve Sherlock for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, WFPR.FM, anywhere on the internet and here in the local Franklin Mass dial on 102.9. Here today for another Making Sense of Climate session with our guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing? Very well, Steve. Good to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been a bit. Yes. We didn't. We haven't recorded since. So now we're kind of mid-September. It's been early August, I think, right? Uh, probably July. July. <laughs> so tell me, what, what what have you been up to through the dog days of August? Well, you know, I got away. I tried not to let people know too much about it because you know that's i'm not a newsmaker i just share the news <laughs> but yeah we got away um and hopefully people didn't notice too too much i did miss a couple of meetings but caught up quickly i think but um uh what did we do so we had gone to iceland a year ago and we didn't complete the trip there was a piece of iceland we had not gone to that was absolutely gorgeous called the west fjords <laughs> And the whole reason to really go in the first place was three years ago, we tried taking a cruise to Greenland. And because of COVID, the cruise got shut down. Last year, we were scheduled to go. Two weeks before we were going, we got shut down. Hence, we did the, the ring road of Iceland instead. So this year, still tenuous. We weren't sure. We figured, well, let's at least complete the piece of Iceland. And if the cruise happens, fine. If it doesn't, at least we've completed a piece of Iceland and we can come back. Um, so this year, the cruise happened. And the West Fjords were just absolutely gorgeous. Um, fjords, think of, you know, like big hills and valleys and water and just, it was awesome. I, I, it, it's, it's, I've never been to Iceland, but this, what you see is that it's, it's, austere but stunningly beautiful right stunning absolutely stunning um and ties as well in with the climate stuff we're talking because iceland certainly 70 percent of their electricity is generated geothermal 30 percent through water power because oh by the way if you're not aware iceland as an island sits at the middle of the two or actually the junction of the two plates the Eurasian plate and the North American plate. So the two of them are there and just kind of rubbing together. And then it creates this island and you've got geysers and geysers, uh, glaciers and volcanoes and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, they're tapping into that on both sides to get green energy. And it's just amazing. I was going to say Iceland is distinct from Greenland in that Greenland is much bigger and much icier and yeah, sort of so they the really should switch names. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting hearing some of the stories from the Greenlanders. They, especially when going back, even when the Norse came and the Vikings, etc., they deliberately called it Greenland because they wanted people to visit there. If they said it was truly Iceland, they, nobody would want to go. Really? But yeah, it's, I think, 70% ice 
80% ice and 30% of green of Iceland is one particular glacier. Um, so it's, it, it's not totally green, but it's got a heck of a lot more green, no trees, but a heck of a lot more green. We took the boat out of Reykjavik, went to the eastern side of Greenland and then down to the tip and then up to the other side, stopping at eight to 10 points. The ice is melting. I can confirm that. We saw icebergs that if you took any one of them and put them downtown Franklin, Franklin would be a little bit obliterated. Really? And there are multiple of those floating and coming and calving and it's staggering. On the one hand, the beauty, the awesomeness, it's just, and there's only 56,000 people that live there. Nook, the major city, is only 17,000. It's it's tiny. Um, and they're literally living on the edge. So interesting. interesting. It was lots of lessons. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you made it back for yes. our continuing conversations back here to the yes. semi-populated uh, New England, right? Yep. And I'll tease into and I'll throw the links in the show note. But um, since we're on a cruise, you got some plane time. I did some book reading as well. So we had teased earlier. Seth Godin was the editor, or at least the front name, if you will, for the Carbon Almanac which we had talked about earlier. The Carbon Almanac is the creation of over 500 people around the world, researchers, et cetera. They pull together the compendium. It's not kind of the book that you just kind of read through. Um, it's got stories in it, but it has the short story, if you will, on what is this term? What is that term? It shows pictures, graphs, makes it easily explainable in good terms. And then it gives you the links to all the research behind it. It is literally the compendium and an almanac. Staggering in its awesomeness. But as staggering as it was, I just needed something a little lighter, a little bit more hope. Because one of the reasons we're, we're doing this to make sense of climate for me is I'm getting a little depressed with this. This is not good. So I found a book that I had tagged along the way at some point where, um, and Jane Goodall, people may recognize she of the chimps names, and Douglas Abrams did a book together, and it was really a conversation done in print. So kind of like if we had taken our conversations, which we've had now, this is our 15th, amazingly, <laughs> they had, I think, five or six, and they put the conversations in book form. Jane certainly can tell some stories, and Douglas has been a researcher on hope. And together they come up with I mean, the emotion uh, of hope. And, and does it matter? And it does. Absolutely. Um, let me just find, and I have it here somewhere. Here it is. So one little quote. Douglas writes, and I quote, Archbishop Tutu once told me that optimism can quickly turn to pessimism when the circumstances change. Hope, he explained, is a much deeper source of strength, practically unshakable. And when a journalist at once asked Tutu why he was optimistic, he said, I'm not optimistic. He was a prisoner of hope. Quoting the biblical prophet Zechariah, he said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. 
To which Jane responds, yes, hope does not deny all the difficulty and all the danger that exists, but it is not stopped by them. There is a lot of darkness, but our actions create the light. And frankly, I needed that. Um, so that's pretty good. Yeah. I highly <laughs> encourage both the books. The links will be in the show notes. I've also got a, a, a more of a travelogue essay kind of book review with that. I'll put that link in the show notes. But, you know, in that yeah. setting, of course. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. It was just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Wow. Yeah. You are a thoughtful, uh, thoughtful person who goes and finds these things and recognizes and comprehends them that's a good that's a good trait so good, good on that's you. what we're trying to do here is to make sense of climate we've got this roadmap that who and others un has put out and mass has its own version and we're following along the way and as we know and really? for those who yeah. have listened to the 14 episodes so far you know it's been trial and error a little bit here a little bit there some successes and as we talked also, we're going to need to go back to do another session with Rep Roy now that the bill that he helped foster through the legislature got signed by Governor Baker. Mm -hmm. A great thing, but it doesn't stop there. There's a hell of a lot of work to do now to make that happen, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the hope comes from is that you get, at least for me, is you, you see that there is action that you can do. Right. It's not I mean, there it, it's it's uh, uh, you just keep plugging away. I mean, look at the look at the Ukrainians. Right. They were almost hopeless there for a while. And, mm -hmm. and recently, anyway, they've had some success. So it's just I mean, you do the right thing, the next right thing. And the next right thing is for Massachusetts to follow that roadmap and just keep doing the things that make sense. And we'll see how it all plays out. Right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Step at a time step at a time and one of the other topics related to that we also had some good news and i'm losing the timeline specifically but one of the things we had talked about here before and was in our jeff discussion as well i believe the pipeline transit line for the electricity coming through maine the court case got resolved in our favor at this point <laughs> to have well, the is, electricity come through it's it's yeah i mean it it, it is an unfolding story that I have been tracking, and it goes way back to like 2014, all the ups and downs, right? So you, you can't, I mean, there's hardly ever time to go back to the beginning, but we'll do, you know, what did, what did Homer's Odyssey, right? You mm. In media rays, right? We just mm -hmm. drop, jump into the middle of the story. But the context for what has happened up in Maine is that, of course, this famous roadmap we keep talking about, reducing emissions. We have to reduce the emissions, blah, 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 blah. In order to do that, we need to electrify everything. Again, that's a buzzword, right? We need to electrify transit, our cars. We need to electrify our homes, your heat pumps and induction. Everything becomes electric. So not mm -hmm. only do we need to make the electricity we use for lighting, say, make that green. We also need more electricity to drive our cars, right? So tons of electricity are needed. For a long time, Massachusetts had targeted uh, a hydro-powered dam in Quebec called Hydro-Quebec. That was where we're going to get lots and lots and lots of green electricity and make everything go forward. 
problem with hydro Quebec is that it's in Quebec. It's not in mm. downtown Boston, right? Yeah. So you need transmission lines jumped forward to the idea of putting a power line from Quebec down through Maine to bring the power down to where the people are in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, right? Fine, fine. There's a company up there, I think it's called CMP. I forget what the acronym actually means, but CMP was building this pipeline, applied for the permits, got all the permits in place, was marching along, actually started construction. Uh, and then in 2021, uh, the op opponents of the whole thing got a referendum put on the main ballot. Okay, so mm -hmm. we need hydro, we need power from Hydro Quebec, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. Right. We want this power line through Maine. We're going to start building the power line. People in Maine put up a referendum to accept or reject the power line. And this referendum is a the, the people supporting it is a mix of actual people who are worried about cutting down trees. So there's good faith people. Fair amount of nimbyism, fair amount of people that are just mad at the local utility and would vote against them no matter what. Mm. Um, there was a significant amount of money that came in from people, uh, from power companies, right? And I think the way surprise. it worked is a place called, <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise, Avant Grid is a company up there. And then there's the Seabrook Power Plant. And I think that they would have had to put out money to build connections to get this power line, you know, contribute money into this power line thing. And they didn't want to do that. Hmm. Okay. Long and short of it is big referendum in Maine. Of course, the people in Maine vote down the power line, right? So now then the people who are building the power line turn around and take, go back to the Supreme Court of Maine and say, hey, it's unconstitutional after we've got all the permits in place for a referendum to deny us this. Right. Okay, so that was the question that went to the Supreme Court. And just this past month, the Maine Supreme Court said that, in fact, the referendum was unconstitutional in that the power line people had, had already got all the permits. So they were vested. They were mm -hmm. in, right? right? And you can't then go back and pull the, 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 the rug out from underneath them, so to speak. Mm. So as it stands now, in September, all this whole question has gone back to the lower courts to have one more round of punching each other, <laughs> like mm -hmm. Punch and Judy, in the lower courts over can they... But the bottom line is that the, the big referendum has been overturned the big obstacle of getting this power line built has gotten out of the way for better or worse and that portends the idea that we would be able to get this green power down from hydro quebec through maine i mean personally i'm like still uh we need to be building up wind turbines here in the state of massachusetts and of course the famous climate bill has uh engendered lots of winter windmills off the offshore but mm -hmm. again it comes back to we need a lot of electrons right to drive sure. our cars and yeah. our, so i mean we just need lots and lots of clean electricity clean power and how to manage that so it's a good thing it's a good thing that the main supreme court ruled against this referendum at least from our parochial perspective uh that we will be able to get green power and satisfy the roadmap.
Yeah, and may provide us with additional sources. Again, assuming still a lot of work done to be done on both sides. They still got to build the finish the transmission lines, and yeah, we yeah, still have yeah. to build our wind power. But if both happen, we should be you know at least better prepared with supplies of electricity to do the powering of what we need. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. And so th that's a good thing, but there's always a but. There's always a one one more. There's another wrinkle. <laughs> there's another. There's always another wrinkle. So one way to look at it is is to say, oh, uh, the people of Maine are an isolated case, right? They got their dander up. They didn't want this power line running through their town, and they voted against it. And the story plays out in isolation in Maine. That's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it is that what has happened in Maine is a a template or a, or a I forget what the right word is, a microcosm, I suppose mm -hmm. you should say. It's something, you know, a big thing happening in a small place. It is it is a an echo of a national debate about how are, are is the United States mm -hmm. going to build the new green infrastructure. In particular, how is the United States going to be building power lines to take power from the wind, windy uh, Dakotas and get it to Chicago? Mm -hmm. right? How are we right. going to get power into Los Angeles? How right. do we how do we do these things? And that is a whole other order of magnitude of questions. Right. So there's a legitimate case that in the 1970s onward. American environmentalists, their whole job was to stop construction of bad things. Mm -hmm. right? And so many of the laws proposed by environment, you know, environmental people were demanded reviews, demanded delay, demanded, um, you know, to try to stop things, try and, and this was in opposition to a permitting process, right? Now we're talking permitting for wells and pipelines and transmission lines, all that kind of fossil fuel infrastructure, that was all built to support the fossil fuel industry over 100 mm -hmm. years, right? right. Everything sure. was designed to, that's why FERC is primarily worried about, oh, we got to make sure the oil and gas industry, you know, gets its way. So you do have this legitimate question that all of a sudden, people like <laughs> myself wake up and say, oh my God, how are we going to put in power lines and transmission lines in places where people might oppose it how what's the right and fair way right. to deal with that yeah and that's going to need to take it up from more of a state and or regional issue to kind of a national discussion point um because i think even what the keystone pipeline was going to come down through the center of the country across um, the canadian border right that was through the border but then down through the center of the country in order to do that certainly some of the indigenous folks in the north dakotas south dakotas etc they were opposed to it as well for a uh, multiple reasons um right. no, nonetheless the heritage etc um but yeah so then it gets us back to never mind the fact that maine at once had been part of massachusetts before. <laughs> well let's figure out how we can do this together because we all together will need to survive and how are we going to build that commonwealth how are we going to build these cross connection points right and, and and so this is where this is where uh so you're in a context where all of a sudden there's this sentiment both from oil and gas people who say 
are frustrated they can't build their bad stuff fast enough and green people who say they can't build the green stuff fast enough right into this saunters joe manchin right the famous senator from west virginia who famously has opposed the build back better i mean he has been a thorn in the side of democrats for a long time now right you may and you probably noticed that there's something called the inflation reduction act which was literally renamed the Build Back Better was literally renamed the Inflation Reduction to make Joe Manchin happy to satisfy mm -hmm. his ego, right? Mm -hmm. Joe, when the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a fantastic climate bill, was passed, Joe Manchin talked to Chuck Schumer, who is the head of the Senate, right? And it, again, if you've been following this at all, Manchin and Schumer had negotiations that the Republicans didn't know about. And so after the a bill passed, all of a sudden uh, Manchin and Schumer come out and say, oh, by the way, we have this new bill we're all going to vote on. And there you go. Part of that internal negotiation was an agreement between Manchin and Schumer to reform the permitting process. Mm, okay? A side Which, deal. Mm. A side deal. They call it a sidecar deal, a side deal. But I mean, this now sinks right into the whole main issue, right? How do we permit these projects? <clears throat> of course, the thing that Manchin and Schumer have cooked up is basically a get out of jail card for the oil and gas industry. And uh -huh. in particular, uh, again, <laughs> what, what a shock, right? But uh, the, the, the particular thing, one of the particular things that the marquee thinks is something called the Mountain Valley Pipeline, mm -hmm. which runs across I think it's from West Virginia, across Pennsylvania, across Maryland, goes through national forests. It does all kinds of bad stuff. Right? It, has, it has been on its deathbed now for a long time from opposition from environmentalists. Right? Manchin wants this thing to get a green light and get built as part of this reform. And what Manchin, the reform is basically chopping off environmental review processes, which means stopping people like you and me from having a voice in the decision about what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. right? And so this is a bad deal, but it does, it is, it is um, congruent with this whole question of how do we build the good stuff? Because I want to build a good, we all want to build the good stuff. We just right. don't want to build the bad stuff. Sure. And I, there's a, um, <clears throat> There's a podcast by Dave Roberts that I highly recommend people listen to because it's a really very insightful discussion of what's what this side deal with Manchin. And again, just to keep everybody square, we're talking about the side deal that Manchin and Schumer made that wants to permit oil and gas stuff because that's related to the power line in Maine. Right? It's all there's there's a, there's all a line, direct somehow. line. Everything's connected, right? Um, the 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 podcast was basically saying that most of the delays that drive Joe Manchin crazy with making the Mountain Valley Pipeline primarily have come due to lawsuits launched by environmentalists because the in, the initial environmental review was not properly done. Mm -hmm. right? So, short, you know, streamlining the permitting process by making the environmental impact statement um, faster and with less input is not going to protect you from a whole bunch of lawsuits after the fact when we didn't do it right, right? So, and that the vast majority of um, of the oil uh, of these permits go through 
on schedule don't get delayed but again this podcast makes a very good point that one of the things that's missing is the funding for places like the bureau of land management to have enough man person power to actually look at these things and sure. march through them right yeah. so there's capacity that the and i think the the inflation reduction act does go some way towards increasing the capacity of a place like Department of Interior for managing these permits, which are going to be more and more important as we want to build, sure. you know, clean energy um, um, stuff. But the the so so Mansion wants the Mountain Valley Pipeline, but the, and he wants to streamline the environmental impact statements. But there's a counter argument that says what you really want to do. I mean, if you want green, good green stuff, we need a national plan, right? That hangs to, that that is at the federal government level. Where do we need the power to come from and go mm -hmm. to, right. right? To sit right. on, and this would be something like FERC, right, or some some master plan. And of course, as as they say in the podcast, once you say master plan. Every, every conservative says socialism. Oh my God! You know, picking what well, and it, it goes back to it's a it's it's the to a certain extent, there are some things that need to be done at a federal level, and some things need to be done at the local, i.e. states' rights level. And this is just raising that as a discussion where the states' rights technically, in some cases, may be abridged. And to what gain? Well, to, if it's the gain of the entire nation, then that's probably a good thing. But obviously, there's different sides to that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the, And, and then the... the 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 argument is that a full and honest participation of the of the people who are affected by these infrastructure projects who live mm -hmm. near the pipelines and it's and, and people who have the consequence of the burned oil right? taking that fully into account would in fact speed up the projects right so what you want is a, an enhanced environmental review and in fact there is a there is a bill that's being pushed uh, by a, a, a rep from from New Mexico. I'm not sure I can I can pull up his name right now, but it's about an environmental justice thing that requires uh, a more honest discussion about the impact of these infra, the, the the oil and gas stuff before it's built. Mm -hmm. Right, and and the argument is that there's there's this bill called um, NEPA. The National Environmental Protection Act. I think that is the law under which environmental impact statements are required. And part of this discussion in this podcast I made reference to is they say, look, if NEPA, if this NEPA bill was working properly, you would not have Cancer Alley in Louisiana with its 25 chemical plants, you know, cheek by jowl in an mm -hmm. environmental justice, right? The, the act doesn't work as it is now. So somehow, you know, it needs to be reformed, but in a way that it incorporates more input. Sure. And so the, I, I think that the, the current status of this whole Michigas thing, and again, it's connected. We started out with the main transmission line as an example of trying to build new projects we end up with Joe Manchin trying to reform permitting to the advantage of oil and gas. What we want to do is reform permitting to the advantage of green projects. This side deal that Schumer and Manchin have cooked up may get attached to one of these bills that has to pass that funds the government, 
right? Mm-hmm. Must pass in quotation right, marks. Right, right. And so then every every politician is going to scurry and say, oh, you know, I really don't like this deal, but we got to keep the government open, right? And so right now, the political battle is to keep these things separate, right. not let Schumer and Pelosi attach this side deal to the omnibus intergalactic spending bill that they're all going to have to vote on, you know, on Christmas Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Keep that separate. And then people can vote on, on this bill on its merits and it will never survive on its own merits, right? And so it's, it's I don't know, it's just a f- interesting it's sort of the bleeding edge, shall we say, of climate stuff. It's like, right, you know, how are we going to build the good things that we know we need in a way that's equitable and just and sustainable and do all the right stuff, but build what we need, right? Mm-hmm. And how are we going? And, and that requires planning and, you know, uh, accepting input. So my, my suggestion is to anyone who's listening, Call your congressman, call your senator, call and, and tell them not to not to vote for this silly thing one way or the other. And in particular, don't let it get tied up with, you know, a defense spending act that everyone has to pass. Mm-hmm. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. And obviously there's people be aware there's more to come. It's not over yet. <laughs> Um, but yeah, weigh in appropriately on whatever side you're on. Hopefully you're on the side that's fostering the green this side. This is me. But- yeah, I'm advocating. I'm saying, look, you know, you guys, if you're, if you're listening, if you accept what I'm saying, the right thing to do is to call your congressman. Um, and But that's just me. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's making sense to climate. I, I think I would have to agree as well. So and in terms of kind of catching up since – it's been a bit and I was away. Okay. We've talked about that. One of the other pieces, um, there's still could discussion around the 10 communities that now as part of the legislation uh, got approved so that they can set in their locales if they choose to prohibit as part of new build and or retrofit the use of fossil fuels in buildings going forward, which as we were just starting to discuss, clearly while the bill has been passed, there's a whole lot of work still to be done. This is certainly another aspect of the work that requires. And to a certain extent, it's kind of like, well, those 10 communities might as well be the pilot ones. Let's figure out some from their experiences what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, but yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of other things that that opens into as well, right? Absolutely. So this is now the Massachusetts climate legislation, distinct from the federal stuff. The, mm-hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act is a federal law. We here in Massachusetts have passed the latest climate bill, which again is a blockbuster, right? There's a lot of good stuff in there. One of the things that the, the this Massachusetts climate bill incorporated was the idea that there would be 10 towns chosen by application uh, to be pilots for banning the use of natural gas entirely in new buildings, right? This is the, this is what you got to do. Okay. The conditions that the legislature wisely, I think wisely put on it was to require the towns to, before they could get accepted to already have enough, meet the standards for affordable housing. At least having that 10% standard. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and yeah, whatever, whatever it is, because it turns out that most of the towns who feel like you're in a position to ban new fossil hookups tend to be the more affluent towns. Mm -hmm. Right. So first of all, you want to say, okay, well, first of all, let's make sure you have affordable housing. Secondly, the legislation requires that there be some sort of documentation and lessons learned from what happens, right? It's not just willy-nilly, you go off and do what you want. Right. Uh, you have to report back what you learn because we're going to do the rest of the cities and towns eventually. Those are two super good things that I think are in the bill. Once the bill got passed in mid, I forget even now, early July, maybe. <clears throat> uh, late July, I think. Late he, July, yeah. yeah maybe yeah, even July. in early in August, because I know it was coming up to the 10th day right just right. before leaving and he finally after one headline said he was getting agita over it <laughs> right, right. he finally did sign it well but within, but then like within a couple of weeks mayor Wu of boston says oh Bo the city of boston wants to be one of the 10 towns mm. which is essentially like you know the dog catching the bus right it's like for boston to ban gas in new hookups is that's a that's a pretty big enchilada. And then other towns, like I think it was Lowell and some of the other big cities said, yeah, we want to get in on this too. Fascinating dynamic because if, if Boston and Lowell and the other places, that means the next turn of the screw would be to say, yeah, we can ban it state, we can ban gas statewide. All right. We a much wider audience than uh, we'd originally anticipated, I guess you could say, if, if, sure. if, if Boston wants to go. But I think that one of the one of the side one of the quirky side things, of course, if we say everything's connected, there's so many intended and unintended consequences. There's so many things to think about. One of the things that we need to keep in mind when we talk about these pilot towns, and in fact, getting off gas entirely, is that there's a bit of an equity issue in the following sense that. Currently, the, basically the only way you can heat your home nowadays is gas. I mean, there's oil, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of oil, and but I mean, a lot, a lot of people have natural gas. The people who have natural gas coming into their home pay fees monthly for the maintenance of the gas pipeline system, right? So the, the basically the, the utilities take all of their costs, divide it up among all the people that are using it, and you get assessed a tariff on your monthly bill to pay for the pipelines to bring you the gas. Mm -hmm. Fine. If you are wealthy enough to put in a heat pump in an induction stove and get off gas, you are now out of that system. You are no longer paying to maintain the pipes in the ground, right? Because you had enough money to buy your way out. And what the what what the utilities will do is they say, oh, we got one less person. We take the same amount of money now. We're going to the same amount of upkeep we have to pay. We're going to divide by fewer people, right? Mm -hmm. And so the maintenance costs keep going up as the well-to-do people flee and get off gas. And you can clearly see that if if this were to follow its own path, the least advantaged people who cannot afford a heat pump end up with increasing costs to maintain the pipes coming into their house hmm. right and that's purely based on income right who's, who's got the who's got the money right. and so there's an equity issue that you can see off in the future where 
community, disadvantaged communities have to pay a disproportionate share to maintain the pipes to bring them the natural gas that they probably don't want, right? But they can't, don't have enough money to get off of. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we just need to be aware of that. And this is where stuff we've talked about before, the idea that we should convert entire neighborhoods simultaneously from gas to heat pumps by doing this famous geo micro grid where mm-hmm. the pipeline in your street is actually carrying the the constant temperature reference water that makes your heat pump so good right, right. yeah that's a way forward that's an equity based <clears throat> way forward and it's just all this big smush of stuff that you're going to think about i'm not really sure where we are mm-hmm. there's a lot of ideas floating around does that i mean does that make sense what i mean <clears throat> Yeah, it's certainly part of the work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a bunch because the other piece, clearly, as people move more and more to whether it's the heat pumps, they still run electricity. So the electric base is going to get even more people who also have to pay similar utility fees in order to maintain the electric grid. So, right. yeah, that would the, the support of that would get cheap because there's more and more people as opposed to less and less people on the other side. Would they equal out? Ideally, it would be nice if they did, but I don't see that happening yet. So, yeah, there's going to have to be something and that potentially is where the government rightly, I think, in this case, would have to provide some sort of, you know, temporary mechanism um obviously keyword on the temporary to make sure we can balance it as we go forward um because then once we're through theoretically then the situation is okay we can go forward but yeah it's it's, I, I think, it's a challenge I, I, for, period for me it's a it's a lesson in the idea that there are equity issues that pop out of most of what we will be doing Mm-hmm. Right, and you need you, you and this. And then this rewinds back to Joe Manchin and the pipeline stuff. Right? We need to listen to people and think through how it affects real people. Everything that we do, in order to make sure that everyone understands what's happening and that the whole thing is done, whatever we try and do is done with with the equity and fairness. Because you want, we need everyone bought into the ideas of a green future and the way you can't you can't have that be. Uh, proportional to how what your income is, basically. Mm. Right, right, yeah. Challenging stuff. Very challenging. So I think I mean it, I mean it it is a yeah. I mean I think this is where your uh, your um, reading of the Jane Goodall book of like you know where do you get your hope because the problem mm-hmm. seems so enormous. Right. right. How do you how do you keep a stiff upper lip so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in the face of what seem to be daunting challenges that you we keep running into right yeah and then she in the book to go back to that briefly there are four reasons that she outlined for hope and then they go into great detail of the stories behind those but for the four reasons certainly the amazing human intellect the resilience of nature the power of young people and finally, the indomitable human spirit, right? Those four things is where she builds to hope forward. Mm-hmm. One other anecdote, it was interesting, Chloe, mindful as well. I mean, I'm flying. We've already talked. That's not one of the greenest things to do on earth. <laughs> um, and then intruding to a certain extent upon this natural land in Greenland, you know, th- they truly live in a different world. I mean, 
just one aspect of their life is totally different from ours. They don't own the land. No one owns the land. That, I mean, just how would we do something like that? That is a different approach. Obviously, they're living in a much more uh, accommodating manner with nature because they're dependent upon the seals, the elk, the reindeer, whatever wildlife they can get to feed off and provide their food, their clothing, in some cases, their heat, et cetera. That is a totally different way. Obviously, also why there's only 56,000 people there, because it's obviously a sustainability challenge. And yet we're on the other side. We have property that some people own <laughs> and some people don't. And we're dealing with inequity, justice, et cetera. Issues. It's like, holy cow. I, I did not know that Iceland. Uh, not, not Iceland, Greenland. Um, Greenland was common property. But funny you should say that because because it would go tangential, an orthogonal thing for, for a moment. I was walking through my neighborhood, beautiful neighborhood, um, and one of the houses had, uh, there was a little backhoe out there. They chopped, chopped down the trees in front of the house. And I said, oh. And it, subsequently, they planted another tree. So good mm -hmm. on that. All good. Sure. Yeah. But it got me thinking that how, how weird a proposition it is that I own my square half acre and I can do whatever the heck I want in this, right? Mm -hmm. I can blacktop it. I can, you right. know, I can do whatever I want and you can't stop me, right? Because it's private property. And you start thinking about that and you say, well, wait a minute, that rewinds back, I think, to like, you know, being the, 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 a man's home is his castle, sort of 1650s law where, you know, not Brit, Hobbes and Hume and these philosophers, right? They were they were equating to the king, right? Which mm -hmm. goes back another thousand years. Sure. I mean, the whole concept of private property that you can own this tree, you can own this uh, beachfront, and no one else can go there, is is I would just submit it is weird. If you go from the Greenland perspective, right, right, Greenland said, "Yeah, we all own everything in in common here, right." Mm -hmm. But in the United States, everyone's got their fence up and their their shotgun to make sure nobody comes on their property. The question is, how do you, you know, we're not going to overturn thousand years of British common law, right, <laughs> and, and no. not have private property? But how do we move to a world where the consequences of what you do on your little patch of heaven you know you take other people into account i mean i, I don't mm -hmm. know I mean, is yeah. that is that too uh utopian uh no because they, they're and location also matters so if your quarter acre half acre whatever it is happen to be near wetlands then there are wetlands rules and regulations conservation commission etc you couldn't chop the tree within the 200 yards of the wetland 200 feet of the wetland whatever the I don't pretend to be an expert. I've just followed some of the meetings, mm -hmm. but you've got rules and regulations that you need to abide by if that location is there. But to your point, yeah, if it's away from that, if it's on the top of the hill, you know, no, no wetlands around, then you can do what you want. Um, but it still begs the question, which is the real one is we are all in this. This is one earth. Um, we need to understand that better and how 
can I be effective doing what I do and still help my neighbor who may not have the wherewithal to do what they need to do in order for us to go forward? And there are some aspects of that that we do. And Chloe, this is getting us into a whole other <laughs> yeah, discussion it area. Yeah. To what we're saying. It's like, it's like, let's, you know, you know, I've got my pitchfork out. I'm, I'm burning, a, you know, <laughs> it's craziness to think. It's like, is the solution is, but, but I, you know, in three or 400 years, you could imagine a completely different world where people view the planet as a commonly held thing. Right. right. And somehow that's going to affect. I mean, there, there are people like right now, I think the river Ganges in India has mm -hmm. personhood rights. Right. I talked to somebody the other day who's, who's the Delaware River Keeper. Right. I mean, do, does, does a river deserve standing in a court of law? I mean, these are questions that would have profound impact on mm -hmm. how our property rights are defined. And yeah, yeah. at it, some point, just, we may just, even want to do a, like a separate thing, because to a certain extent, especially with the indigenous folks and in the Inuit, or at least from some of the things that I was picking up just in the brief time there, there are certain practices of theirs that change our mindset and approach to that because of the reasons and it's again been passed down through the generations that's the way they survived that's the way they lived um yeah that's that's probably worth of another discussion yeah maybe we should i i think it's really because that sort of and i've, I've said well i've said a thousand times about uh, the ursula ursula Le Guin quote science fiction writer who said that if you spoke if you went and talked to a medieval serf in the year 1000 and tried to explain modern day capitalism, they would not know what you're talking about. No, right? no, so no. we're all, you know, humanity today is headed somewhere. We just have no idea what it's going to be. But if, if we're, there's going to be a future, it's going to have to be one that accepts the planet as some sort of partner. right? And so it's going to be different from what we think now. And, mm -hmm. We should talk about that sometime. Maybe we I'll should. Get five cups yeah, of coffee. We're, and, uh... we're, we're getting along that way. I certainly have steered us that way a little <laughs> bit, but I think it was inevitable because um, there is only one Earth. Right. As many of us there are, um, our own, you know, in our, in our lifetime, by 2030 and 2050, et cetera, certain things need to be done. There's already reports saying, well, that if we don't even move faster, then something's going to happen sooner, et cetera. So, yeah, the work is on us. The work has to be done. Um, I hopefully have a little bit more hope that will get us through <laughs> what we need to do. And hopefully if they're listening and haven't turned off saying, what the heck's going on with those folks? <laughs> if you are listening, thank you. You stayed with it. Thank you. <laughs> Stay tuned. There's more to come. <laughs> well, thank you for another riveting discussion. And um, we've got another few tacks to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is always, always fun. And I think, uh, yeah, we have more, there's lots more to talk about. So. Yeah. It's, it's all connected one to another. And I think that connection piece is one of the recurring themes that we're just going to have to spend some more time on. So in the meantime, Thank you, and thank you, listeners. And as a quick reminder, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. 
How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.